It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey back with you on Friday, December 15th, 2023. The Fed holds steady on interest rates for the third meeting in a row. The UN Climate Summit calls on countries to move away from fossil fuels. They explicitly said fossil fuels were tied to climate change and global warming. And Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, fighting a war against Russia, appears with President Joe Biden and pleads Congress for aid that looks to be not coming anytime soon, at least not by the end of the year. So big stories on this Friday, Sam Park. Let's start with the Fed and perhaps the only deadhead who would be thought to be in the Illuminati itself, uh, Jerome Powell. Um, Maybe Phil Lesh. Is he in the Illuminati, would I, you say? I'm not sure about that. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, you know, and he's also in the band. Yes, that's so right. He can't be a deadhead. Uh, good point. Good point, though. Okay, so third meeting in a row, rates have not been raised, right? The uh, Federal Open Market Committee voted unanimously to keep the benchmark overnight borrowing rate between 5.25 and 5.5. That's the actual real rate. That's the actual dial they adjust, right? That's right, yes. Um, And with this non-adjustment of the rate came the infamous dot plot, right, where the uh, Fed members anonymously kind of plot their their own predictions for the future. And uh, they think core personal consumption expenditures price index will decline to 2.2 by 2025 and finally reach its 2% target in 2026. So I guess inflation's over if you want it or something something like that yeah i mean i was a little puzzled by this frankly now i get that inflation is a lagging indicator right the the sure. policies that the fed institutes don't take effect immediately they take some time to work their way through the economy but for instance earlier this year the federal reserve said that they foresaw the necessity of raising interest rates I believe they said twice mm-hmm. by the end of this year. And they have not done it once. And they did not do either. They did not do it even once. And so I guess, for example, we talked last week about the University of Michigan's consumer sentiment survey, which for the first time in quite a, in quite a while showed a marked decline in consumer expectations of inflation going forward. Now, obviously, the Federal Reserve has other data that they look look at apart from the University of Michigan survey. But it's well known that the University of Michigan survey is a favored data set of the feds. And again, it was a dramatic decline in consumer expectations of inflation. And as we've discussed many times here on Working for Crusoe, uh, consumer expectations of inflation are an important factor that actually drives inflation. So if people expect inflation to come down, that actually seems to indicate that their own behavior will not contribute so much to rising inflation in the future as it has been in the past year or so. So still, though, inflation at 3.1%, which, by the way, ticked up very slightly last month. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's flat, but it's not falling for the past couple of months. And so 
again, I'm sure the Fed has reasons for thinking that inflation will continue to fall, but it isn't doing it now. And so it seems to me that ruling out future interest rate rises for the near term just again it's a little confusing to me now they did also say that they are continuing gradually with their process of quantitative tightening for example which also helps uh in this process and that is literally taking dollars out of the system it boosts the fed's intake of dollars from the bonds it sells into the market right so again the Fed knows more about these things than I do. And so if I don't understand it, I'm confident that the problem is me. But it does seem <laughs> a little confusing. Uh, the dot plot also indicated that the Fed's members anticipate at least three rate cuts in 2024. Right. Exactly. So, and that right, adds like, to my confusion. Yeah. Like, and and also the breathless reporting around this seems to I mean, I don't mean to mischaracterize CNBC and and the Wall Street Journal, but it does seem as though there was a lot of pent up over exuberance that sure. this, you know, and I think now this is, just I mean, I get it. They all have portfolios. That's exactly the point I was about to make, right? <laughs> is that financial journalists, they're not just commentators, right? They have skin in this game. Now right. it may not be a huge amount of money, but it matters to them. And I think that this contributes to, uh, a certain amount of bias in the reporting that we're that we're able to see at all. Then again, you don't want your financial reporter to be be some schmo who has no familiarity with markets whatsoever. Of course, so it's, it's difficult to see what the alternative would be. But for for example, as you say, the Fed seemed to indicate that they expected to start cutting rates next year. But they don't expect inflation to return to their target rate until the following year. Right. I don't really understand how that makes Actually, sense. Actually, 26. Okay, fine. Yeah. So uh, if, if inflation has not yet returned to your target rate, why would you cut interest rates? I mean, maybe they think the fire is out so you can stop pouring water on. I don't know. Yeah, no, I... I it right. must be something like that. But again, I'm chalking this up to my own limited understanding of how these phenomena work. But perhaps the Fed could do a slightly better job of explaining that. On the whole, though, you're right. It's It sort of seems like uh, Jerome Powell is playing the role of St. Nicholas at, in right. this holiday season. Although Very nice, might, Sam. He might generally prefer to be thought of as St. Stephen. That's a Grateful Dead song, John. <laughs> You but, snuck one by me. But in the yeah, markets were exuberant about this. They they were thrilled that not just that the Fed doesn't seem to be wanting to raise interest rates in the near term, but that they in fact expect to be lowering them. But again, I can understand saying, okay, we don't expect to be raising interest rates, but to actually forecast cuts for next year, I it just seemed again, it's confusing to me. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Now, let's pull this out of the Fed and overnight borrowing rates, and let's contextualize this in kind of real-world um, examples and real-world manifestations of what the Fed does. You and I both know people who own real estate, who wish to purchase real estate, right? This 
is a huge impacting force on people's ability to get a mortgage. And that's right. Folks are lining up kind of like right at the dock waiting for the ship of interest rates like there used to be to come into port so they can Not hop just on board. that, but they can see the ship. Interest yeah. rates have it's, all, I mean, that is mortgage rates have already begun to fall very slightly, but they, it's expected that they will continue to fall further. And obviously, real estate, specifically residential real estate, is a huge driver in many economies, and certainly the United States. Um, but that's kind of how just you know Main Street day to day. Fed stuff seems to manifest itself, in my experience, just talking to regular people who don't have podcasts that talk about the Fed. Sure. I mean, for instance, if home buying drops off, then so does home construction. And home value. That's right. And so if construction drops off, that's construction jobs that aren't being added to the economy. And so housing filters through to the rest of the economy very quickly. You know, think of retailers like Lowe's or Home Depot, right? Uh, who sell home improvement gear. This matters to a lot of different segments of the economy as time goes on. So if the housing market can recover, it helps other sectors as well. So the UN Climate Change Summit meeting in Dubai, United Arab Emirates, the host... Uh, nation, the president. Adnoc. Adnoc, thank you. The Abu Dhabi National yes. Oil Company. I was trying to think of the Beastie Boys line. Ad Rock. Ad Rock, yes, right. right. Sam, did they go into overtime? Did they actually give us a sporting metaphor on this? I think it might have been a quick overtime. I'm not it was sure. scheduled for 10 days and it actually extended. Yeah, but it, it wound up the following day. I think they pulled an all-nighter, basically, on, right. on uh, the final night to get the, the, end, the closing statement of of the conference. Okay. So I encourage everybody as Sam Park encouraged me find France 24's 43 minute debate on the final language of the cop 28 proclamation. Uh, it's on YouTube. It is free of charge and it's worth it, right? Because there are some really interesting examples of how meaningful moving away from fossil fuels, which is what this summit's proclamation contains a call to transition away from fossil fuels, move away from fossil fuels, um, how that will impact various places in the global economy and how it's very different in Western Europe or Colombia or somewhere else in the developing world. India. Um, India was another one. Exactly. So before we get into that, the big news is the language in this COP28 proclamation is the, the explicit use of the term fossil fuels as a driver of climate change, which is both encouraging and tragic, considering yes. <laughs> considering these UN climate summits have been happening since 1995. And I'm pretty sure we all knew in 1995 fossil fuels were the smoking gun behind climate change. But at but least it's now this was in the, the language. the first time no. that the COP summit was able to use the words fossil fuels in their closing statement. I mean, maybe the bar should be even lower considering it was hosted by United Arab Emirates and the president of the summit was the president of an oil and gas company. I mean, I maybe, the, maybe the, this is a miracle. I think the president Sultan Al-Jabbar would have you think so. Certainly look at, yeah. look what I did. I'm the president of an oil company, but my cop summit was the first one to actually mention fossil fuel. Nice work, bro. 
Um, it calls for the tripling of renewable energy uh, sources by the end of this decade. And to deforestation in the same time frame. Critics say the language is weaker uh, than at-risk nations had wanted. The term phasing out of fossil fuels was not explicitly included in the final text. I mean, they're yes, not... that's right. We're, uh, previously on Working for Crusoe, right. that is last week, there was a dispute about whether they wanted to call for phasing out of fossil fuel use as opposed to moving away from or phasing down those were the two options that seemed to be bandied about at that point they instead chose a third option of transition away from fossil fuels although as the debaters on france 24 mentioned that's only the use of fossil fuels in the generation of fossil fuels not in the industrial process the industrial processes that use them so yeah we're mentioning fossil fuels for the first time and we're transitioning away partly but not in everything that we use fossil fuels for Uh, having said that however i think the tripling of renewable energy capacity in, in by the end of this decade that's a big deal Right. If that could be achieved, it would be a huge help, as would the end of deforestation. The problem, however, is that since the beginning of the COPS summit process three decades ago, targets set at the summits generally haven't been met. And this has been a problem. However, even critics of the, the summit process would tell you this is the only way that we're able to make any progress globally on doing these things. So, yeah, the COP summit needs to be improved, but we can't get rid of it as much as frustrating as it is, which it always is. Uh, on that France 24 debate, Annabella Rosenberg, one of the experts, had the just the searing quote that I will now read to you when she was answering critics of this obviously semi-corrupt and flawed process, right? Annabella Rosenberg, what is the alternative to multilateralism? Local action not aggregating ever to any scale. Yeah, and she's right about she's that. She's 100% right. If you get all these fossil fuel bastards in a room and set targets nobody meets, at least you're moving towards those targets in theory in some coordinated effort at a global scale. Exactly. And again, to be fair, the United States, for example, has been making some progress in reducing our, our carbon emissions. This is actually happening. There's renewable energy pro, uh, projects that are being developed all over this country and in other parts of the world also. So it's not at all that the means to do this are some big mystery. It's really the question of summoning the political will across the globe, as you say, uh, to get these things done. And I would also point out that the people most disappointed about the outcome of the COP28 summit this year were grouped in an, an association known as the Association of Small Island States. It's not clear to me whether they call themselves ACES or not. Uh, I kind of hope they don't, actually. But <laughs> that's up to them. You know, I, I don't live in a small island state, so I don't get a vote on this. 
but they're the the ones that are possibly most at risk from climate change because they could literally get swamped by the ocean if sea levels continue to rise. And to say nothing of extreme weather events that land on them. That's right. Uh, And it's interesting to me, and I think insufficiently discussed, perhaps because it's rather a sensitive matter, but it seems to indicate that there's a division among the nations of the global South, of which the small island states are certainly members, but larger nations of the global South, such as India, Saudi Arabia, are less inclined to want to move away from fossil fuel production and or use. Ah, and that's because the small island nations are really only on the stick side of the carrot stick equation. They're they're really only on the consequence side of climate change, as we mentioned, sea level rise and, and extreme weather, whereas a place like India makes the compelling case, hey, you got to have your industrial revolution with fossil fuels. We should have ours. It'll be very lucrative for us, just like it was for you. That's right. And that is what they want to do. And they might go on to say, if you don't want us to have that revolution using fossil fuels, then you're going to need to help us do it some other way. Okay, so that brings us to the brilliant example of the nation of Colombia, which was discussed in the France 24 debate. That was fascinating. Fascinating, right? So- I'll distill this and you can fill in the blanks. Colombia is uh, a, a nation that derives a lot of revenue from oil, right? Yes. They are an oil producing nation. Coincidentally, their pe- their president is named Petro. <laughs> Colombia professes to have the political will to move away from this, but they need revenue to pay debts to run their state and they are essentially saying hey uh international monetary fund or world bank or whomever there's got to be like a slush fund a kitty a piggy bank where you can help countries get off fossil fuel where the political will exists where it will be impactful if you take a place like colombia off the oil extraction line that's gonna i hate to use this term that will move the needle certainly I found that fascinating because you just you think, oh, Petrostate, bad. They just want the oil cash. Not necessarily. No. And, you know, for instance, they also have uh, part of the Amazon rainforest. Right. And so there's a number of issues involved in this. And uh, another outcome of this year's COP28 summit was that it was decided after years of wrangling over this issue that the World Bank would be in charge of what's known as the loss and damage fund. which And this is the, the kitty, the slush fund I referenced. That's right. And, which, by the way, is pitifully small I'm sure. compared to what, the, you know, what it's going to need to be used for. Well, think about the amount of cash you would need to pony up to a place like India to convince them to get off fossil fuels. Exactly. I mean, right. that's a and, lot of coin. And so, and by the way, when Western nations have pledged money for this fund, they've generally failed to deliver that money. Uh, but it perhaps that will change now that it's known that it will be the World Bank that will be administ- administering this fund. And that's a big job. They have to sort of think no one's ever had to do this before. They have to actually figure out from scratch 
how it's going to work. And so I think that was one of the reasons why, in the end, everybody could agree that it should be the World Bank because they're really the only institution that is equipped to be able to do something like this, even though I think many nations objected because they're essentially a Western-leaning institution. And so it was thought that there would be some bias involved in their methodology. I think that's probably a fair assessment. But I think a, a very valid riposte would be, okay, what other institution do you think should sure. do this? Should we build a brand new one? And I think people finally saw the wisdom of uh, how impractical it would be to have to do something. I mean, listen, uh, I understand the criticism, but there's no plucky little you know credit union of the global south that's in a position to do it better. Exactly. Nuclear. If there's going to be a tripling of renewable energy by the end of the decade, or at least an attempt to get there, that's going to mean a lot more nuclear power plants. People think it will, yes. That's what the experts say. We all know the downsides of nuclear power, right? If there's a problem, it's a disaster. But it generates a lot of no-carbon electricity for a long time. That's right. That's the other thing about th- this this COP language. I don't know if they specifically discuss nuclear, but like uh, natural gas is not included um, as a fossil fuel per se. It's more like a, it's a transition energy yes. source right we're in an effort to get the warming trend under three degrees centigrade we might have to build things we don't like or use energy in from sources we don't love just to get away from the things that we know are really bad right i guess good don't let perfect be the enemy of good but That's it's, right. it's a tough sell well, I mean, do you want a nuclear power plant down the, the street from you? I don't think you. Okay, would. The, the, well, that but thing is, to me, that's the correct question, right? If any power utility wants to build a nuclear power plant, then there are permitting processes for these things, and they should have to go through those permitting processes. I think some nuclear advocates would say that those permitting processes should be relaxed in order to stimulate the greater adoption of nuclear power. And the point I would make is, for example, uh, earlier this year, or perhaps at the end of last year, in rural Finland, I don't remember the name of the town, uh, they opened the world's first commercial nuclear waste disposal facility. And like bring your nuclear waste here for a very uh, yeah, attractive they drilled fee. down miles yeah. underground, you know, maybe not miles, but very far distance underground. And they're going to stuff all the nuclear waste down in there. Nobody has done this before, even though we've been using nuclear power for decades. Better part of 80 years. The waste pile up wherever, basically. Right. Usually on site at the plants and the people in the town in Finland, where the site is located, they first of all, there's already a nuclear power plant running there, which provides quite a lot of jobs for the town. And they all approved of having this facility in their town. It's going to, you know, you get there, obviously, nuclear power plants across the world, the thinking goes, are going to pay this facility to store their nuclear waste for them, right? So this will bring revenue into the town 
and some level of prosperity in and hopefully Finland. and hopefully no new cancers yeah the point the, the point is the this community signed off on this sure. and so if that can be done there anywhere, is hope right then i'm for it if if your community signs off on building a nuclear plant in that community you go right ahead and build it and in fact in recent years there's been a lot of attention paid to uh designs more modern designs of nuclear plants which are called small modular reactors which can be built quickly uh, because they're modular they're built in large sections and just sort of snapped together on site and in fact one company called new scale got regulatory approval last year or maybe earlier this year but i think it was last year to to from the nuclear regulatory commission to actually construct this the problem with nuclear power historically has been that nuclear power plant projects tend to come in late and over budget and there's one group of people that hates both of those categories and this group of people is generally known as investors if you think that you're not going to get your money back in a timely manner uh, or as much of it by investing in these power plants then you're just going to be a little shy about investing in it and so the small modular reactor was designed in part to address exactly these concerns they're small right and they could be built more quickly they're the Clint Eastwood of uh, nuclear reactors, right? Clint Eastwood is a director famous for running a quick schedule and coming in under budget. That's right. And so uh, now they're not as cool as Clint Eastwood, but <laughs> but they would like to think that they are, right? The problem is new scale. I mean, that's the, also why Clint still works into his 90s, because investors know that about him. That's right. Exactly. And so new scale, the company that has the only approved design for a small modular reactor, uh, they abandoned the one project they had on the books. Partly, by the way, because the rising interest rate environment totally blew their financials out of the water. Uh, that's not the only reason. But uh, So now they have to go back to the drawing board and try and find a different power utility to try and uh, get approval from that community to build this. The other problem with small nuclear reactors is that they are small. Uh, and so you have to build a lot of them to generate the same amount of power as you would get out of a large reactor. Therefore, you have to go through permitting processes all over the place in many different communities. And again, if you can get that done, great. I'm just not sure this can happen fast enough for the climate emergency that we're having right now. Whereas we know that things like wind and solar can be scaled up very quickly. Now, there are obstacles that they face, certainly. Uh, but another innovation that's been happening right now this year is that battery storage is suddenly getting a lot better. Yes. And if that can be brought along quickly, I think that's actually, if you combine high levels of battery storage with wind and solar, I think that might be a better bet than nuclear power. I don't know. I could be wrong about this. But for the reasons I've just outlined, I just think that might be a better way to go. 
God, we might have to make a field trip to Nuketown, Finland, do a special uh, report from on site. I've never Perhaps been to Finland. Perhaps next summer. Yeah, right. Vladimir Zelensky asking the United States to be who we think we are has been rebuffed by congressional Republicans. Um, President Biden, in a joint news conference with President Zelensky earlier this week, accused uh, Republicans of holding military aid to Ukraine, quote, hostage. And that is in exchange for what President Biden called an extreme Republican partisan agenda regarding the U.S. border and in particular the southern border. Basically, Republicans have said, if you want aid to Ukraine, you must also authorize these perhaps draconian measures uh, regarding the southern border of the United States and the so-called immigration crisis. It does not resonate with me politically that there is some crisis on the southern border. And well, but there you, is one. But I understand there needs to be a reform. But I just, to me, it's a bit politically mystifying. I'm not saying it's not a political issue. And I'm not saying that the uh, asylum process isn't horribly broken and desperately needs to be fixed. No, but the the numbers of people coming across the border today are just astronomical by, by historical standards. This is a real thing. It's not just something... I, I completely, and I, and I think congressional Democrats need to have a deal on this subject. But to, tie, but to tie it to aid for a democracy fighting for its very existence against a belligerent historically <laughs> yeah a, a belligerent fascist and historically adversarial nation to the united states oh it's indefensible i agree with it's you. unbelievable i mean again these people claim the mantle of patriotism and and you and the exceptionalism of uh, the american experiment this is where that comes from defending freedom at all costs anywhere in the world okay but it's not just the united states now maybe uh the Equally baleful results that came out of the European Union this week might not have occurred were it not for the failure of United States leadership on this, but they might have anyway. OK, so, so we sorry before we get too riled up. So basically, congressional Republicans are because they're tying this to the border issue in the United States. There's there's going to be no additional aid package for Ukraine before the end of the year, even Mitch McConnell the Senate Republican leader who has been pretty bullish on defending Ukraine says it's there's no chance, not a very good chance that anything will move forward before the end of the year. There's still some funding that is left in old appropriations, and the Biden administration is looking for non-congressional ways to keep giving the Ukrainians money. But this is a setback for the Ukrainians. Okay, and let's just call it what it is or what I think it is, right? I think Republicans in Congress have correctly foreseen that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee for their party very soon. And they're just lining up to be ready for that to happen because they know that Trump loves Vladimir Putin, hates Ukraine because they were the approximate cause of his first impeachment. And they believe that, or many people believe anyway, that if Trump returns to power, Basically, it's over anyway, uh, and they need to be on the good side of Trump when he becomes the nominee. Now, maybe that's misplaced, but it might not be. And so this has been a bad week for Zelensky. There's no money forthcoming from the United States. Yesterday, for about five minutes, it looked like things were going better for him uh, in the Council of Europe when 
Viktor Orban did not veto Ukraine's bid to become a member of the European Union. Orban, the uh, strongman leader of Hungary and buddy of Putin. That's right. Although he's in his country is in the European Union and in NATO. And so people were surprised that Orban did not use his veto power yesterday. Then this morning, he did veto additional military aid from the European Union to the tune of some $50 billion uh, that the European Union hoped to give to Ukraine and now will not be. So uh, it's not just the United States. The staggering is, failure of leadership by the United States, that's nevertheless. Right. And I think Orban might be undergoing a similar sort of calculation because there's no th- he's got nothing to lose by letting Ukraine begin the years-long accession process of joining the European Union. If Putin takes over all of Ukraine before that process is complete, then it, it won't happen anyway. Right, because if Donald Trump is elected in 24 and is inaugurated in 25, ostensibly the political wave will also have carried both houses uh, to the Republicans in the United States, and there will be no more significant or any aid to Ukraine. That's right. And so we people have said- And Russia will win the war. People have said for quite a long time that Putin is is just hoping to last another year in the war uh, in the hopes that, that Donald Trump will uh, return to power. And I think that's probably true. But I think also, and this might be a good place to wind it up for this week, that other people are making that same calculation. For example, Saudi Arabia. If Trump returns to power, they'll hope to have better relations with the United States than the ones they have already. And I think, this is just sheer speculation on my part, Benjamin Netanyahu might be making the same calculation. But we'll return to that in future episodes. Oh, good tease, Sam. You must have been broadcasting for a while. I haven't been. It's just I'm just a gifted gifted amateur, John. (laughs) All right. So next week we will have our year in review. Those of you who have questions or comments, Media at gmail.com. Thank you to those of you who have been uh, taking in the pod on our YouTube channel, John Ramey Media, and, of course, uh, the OG way on the Substack and uh, or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple. However you take it in, we appreciate you, and uh, we'll visit with you next week. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. So long. Happy holidays.